Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Each week in the synagogue, Jews read, or more usually chant, a passage from the sacred Torah. This weekly passage from the Torah is referred to as a parasha. The first parasha, for example, is Parashat Bereshit, the parasha of creation which covers from the beginning of Genesis to the story of Noah. There are 54 parashiot, one for each week of a leap year, and as many of you know, a Jewish leap year adds an extra month, nine out of every 17 years. So that in the course of a year, the Jewish people read the entire Torah, from Genesis to Deuteronomy during the services. A Torah is read, a section of the Torah is read Monday, Thursday, and the entire portion is read on Shabbat, Saturday morning. During non-leap years, there are only 50 weeks, so some of the shorter portions are doubled up. Jews read the last portion of the Torah right before a holiday called Simchat Torah, rejoicing in the law, which occurs in October a few weeks after Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. On Simchat Torah, Jews read the last portion of the Torah from the book of Deuteronomy and then immediately proceed to the first paragraphs of Genesis, showing that the reading of Torah is a circle and never ends. In the synagogue service on Saturday, The weekly parasha is followed by a passage from the prophets, which is known as the Haftarah. Contrary to many misconceptions, the Haftarah does not mean a half a Torah. The word comes from the Hebrew root, fe tetresh, which means concluding portion. And usually the Haftarah portion is no longer than one chapter of one of the books of the prophets and has some relation to the weekly portion of the week. The Torah and Haftarah readings are performed with great semeromi. The Torah is paraded around the room before it is brought to rest on the rubima or the reading podium, and the reading is divided into portions and various members of the congregation are invited to have an honor by reciting a blessing over a portion of the reading. The honor is referred to as an aliyah, literally ascension, going up to the reading of the Torah. In more traditional synagogues, the first aliyah of any day's reading is reserved for a kohen, the descendants of the high priesthood, the second for a Levite, a descendant of all the other priestly class, and priority for the third aliyah is given to people celebrating major life events, such as marriage or the birth of a child. In fact, a bar mitzvah was originally nothing more than the first aliyah of a boy who reached the age to be permitted such an honor. 
Celebrants of life events are ordinarily given the last aliyah, the seventh aliyah, which concludes the, includes blessing the last portion of the Torah reading as well as blessing the Haftarah reading. The person given this honor is referred to as the mafter from the same root as the Haftarah, meaning one who concludes. Now, all of this is what we have today. But the very first mention of a scheduled Torah reading cycle appears in the Torah itself in Deuteronomy, where Moses instructs the tribe of Levi and the elders of Israel to gather all the people for a public reading from the portion of the Torah once every seven years. The need to read Torah publicly intensified after the destruction of the Second Temple by the Romans in 70 CE. Jews were dispersed into other parts of the Middle East, into North Africa, and even into Europe, and their religious and cultural world became decentralized. While most Jews in the diaspora now follow the one Torah reading cycle, which begins and ends in a similar year, some communities have a triennial cycle in which, over a course of three years, they read all the words found in the Torah scroll. Because a reference in the Mishnah, the first effort to permanently record Jewish custom and law compiled in the third century of the CE, supported Deuteronomy's prescription we understand that Jews were continuing to read the Torah public, and we also know that there were specific Torah portions assigned for festivals and special Shabbatot. That's the plural of Shabbat and even fast days. But it was not until the Talmudic era, about 6th century CE, that Jews in the land of Israel began to read the entire Torah in public and do so until all the five books of Moses were completed. At that time, the cycle took three years in a pattern called the Palestinian Triennial, Palestinian referring to the land of Israel, beginning the first year with the first book, Genesis, and finishing at the end of the third year with the fifth book, Deuteronomy. The Jews of Babylon, living outside the land, followed a different custom established at the beginning of the sixth century of the Common Era and completed the entire cycle each year, which they did by dividing the Torah into 54 weekly portions, as I've already indicated. Because the number of portions exceed the number of weeks in a normative year, a non-leap year, more than one portion is read. In Hebrew, the word for portion is parashiot. In the 19th century, a reintroduction of the Palestinian triennial cycle was attempted at the West End Congregation in London, but was unsuccessful. In the middle of the 20th century, various congregations in the United States, primarily those associated with the conservative movement, were seeking to modernize the service and also spend more time on Shabbat, on Torah study. They too attempted to revive the Palestinian cycles, 
with the argument that reading only a section of the weekly Torah portion would make Torah study more concentrated and thus enhanced. The reintroduction failed for two reasons. First, in the pattern of the Palestinian triennial cycle, the weekly reading would have differed from what the rest of the Jewish world was reading. And being in coordination with the rest of the Jewish world for ritual purposes has always been a primary goal of Jewish religious life. Second, Simchat Torah, the holiday which I previously mentioned, in which Jews celebrate the conclusion of one Torah reading cycle and the beginning of the next, would occur only one out of every three years instead of annually. And Jewish communities, again, felt the pain of being out of sync with other communities. So, Jews read a section of the Torah every week. We understand that this origin is both in the Bible and also found in the later books of the Tanakh, the Jewish uh, canon, in which Ezra, the scribe, established the practice, which continues today. Monday and Thursday, which were added to Saturday, were traditionally days that Jews would go to the nearest town and shop and trade. Also, this way, the people would never go for more than three days without getting spiritual sustenance from the Torah. There were breaks in this practice, but since the Maccabean period in the second century before the Common Era, public Torah readings have been maintained continuously. It was also in the Maccabean period that the Jews started reading from the Torah, as I've already suggested, on Saturday, but also Saturday afternoon, and therefore they would start reading on Saturday afternoon, Monday and Thursday, and then finish the portion on Shabbat morning. As I've already indicated, the ceremony for reading of the Torah is elaborate and celebrates the glory of Torah, as do the ornaments that the Torah is dressed in. But where the reading of the Torah, namely the literal words of Torah, the primary goal, that would not be in keeping with the last 2,000 years of Jewish tradition. The Torah is a complex and self-referential text. In the period of the classical rabbinic homiletical interpretation of Torah during the 2nd through 7th century, the sages began to write commentary. We call that rabbinic homiletical commentary midrash to connect the various biblical texts to each other to the life of the sanctification prescribed by Jewish law, and to their own contemporary experiences. This Midrashic approach was virtually the only way that Jews read the Bible until the Islamic conquest in the 7th century. In fact, the New Testament tells us 
that Jesus was invited to the synagogue at Capernaum, and following the Torah reading, he was invited to give a commentary on the Torah. That was not unique in biblical times and in the second century of the Common Era. Jews believed that the reading of the literal word had to be accompanied by commentary. The Midrash, the homiletical commentary, served as the foundational approach. But as Jews began to learn from Arabic and scholars the principles of grammar and philology, a new model of biblical interpretation developed, the Peshat, plain method. To its medieval practitioners, Peshat meant the search for meaning of the text in its linguistic, literary, and historical context, not in fanciful homiletical understandings. Thanks to development in Hebrew grammar, beginning with the research of Sajigaon in the 10th century and continuing in Spain, rabbi linguists use the Peshat method as a powerful tool to understand what God's intentions were within the text. The Peshat method rejects the basic assumption of the homiletical method. Consider the verse reporting God's words to Moses prior to the revelation at Mount Sinai. Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, the interpretation normally relied heavily on the drosh on to the house of Jacob. However, in later interpretations, the word house was not used to mean uh, anything other than descendants. The word house in Hebrew and the word for uh, a female relative have similarity, and in the Peshat, the rejection of uh, um, that similarity is preeminent. And it appears that simply the shows the house means one's ascendant. Uh, now, why did the Jews do this? Well, the Jews wanted to find God's essential meaning within the text. They wanted to look within the text, if they were going to be reading it every week, to find the messages. So Torah study, the study of the Torah, the Hebrew Bible, the Talmud, became an essential part of our experience with Torah. No matter what the uh, perspective that one holds on the origins of Torah or the meaning of Torah, study of the Torah was always considered the highest ideal for Jewish men. Women were exempt from this imperative originally. And this literature teaches an e e eagerness 
for such study and a thirst for knowledge that expanded beyond the entire text of the Tanakh to the entirety of our sacred writings. In fact, here are some traditional religious teachings. The study of Torah outweighs a number of Jewish laws, such as visiting the sick, honoring one's parents, and bringing peace between people. A number of early rabbis consider study of Torah as being greater than the rescue of a human life, than the building of the temple of Jerusalem, than the honor of father and mother, and provided that the individual's life will be saved by somebody else. According to Rabbi Meir, one of the rabbis of the Torah, of the Talmud, when one studies Torah Lishma, Torah for its own sake, the creation of the entire world is worthwhile for him alone, and he brings joy to God. As a child must satisfy its hunger day to day, so must the grown man busy himself with the Torah each hour. A single day devoted to Torah outweighs a thousand sacrifices, we are told. God weeps over one who might have occupied himself with Torah study, who was capable of it, but neglected to do so. I could go on and on and quote the pithy aphorisms that were uh, created to teach that Torah study was an essential component of Jewish life. In fact, the rabbis of blessed memory devised two levels, four levels of Torah study. The first level is the easiest level called Peshat, the plain or literal meaning of the text. The second is Remez, the allegorical reading through text hints or allusion. The third is Drosh, the metaphorical reading through rabbinic homiletics, comparisons, illustrations, and stories, and sowed. The hidden meaning reading through the text secret or mystery usually found in the mystical texts of the Kabbalah. The initial letters of the word pshat remez drosh sod form the Hebrew word pardes, which means an orchard, and became the designation for the four-way method of studying Torah, in which the mystical sense given in the Kabbalah through the sod was the highest point. This distinction is similar to the medieval Christian classification into literal, typological, tropological, analogical senses of scripture. It's not certain whether this fourfold division first occurred in a Jewish or Christian context. There are many methods that have evolved out of these four forms. This morning, I want to begin our uh, pursuit of meaning found in each week's Torah portion, because I hope to, through an exploration of each week's Torah portion, um, enlighten all who listen to the show how myself and other commentators find great meaning 
in the Torah portion, even when it's read every year. This week, the Torah portion is found in Deuteronomy. We begin reading Deuteronomy 21, verse 10, through Deuteronomy 25, verse 19. And the portion is entitled in Hebrew, Ki say when they go out. Now, I'm going to give you a nutshell overview of this portion. According to tradition, 74 of the Torah's 613 commandments are in this week's parasha. These include the laws of the beautiful captive, the inheritance rights of the firstborn, the wayward and rebellious son, burial and dignity of the dead, laws concerning the returning of a lost object, the most famous law of sending away the mother bird before taking her young, the duty to erect a safety fence around the roof of one's home, and the various forms of kleilim, kileim, forbidden plant and animal hybrids. Among the many other laws found in this week's Torah portion are the judicial procedures and penalties for adultery, for the rape or seduction of an unmarried girl, and for a husband who falsely accuses his wife of infidelity. The following cannot marry a person of Jewish lineage. So, a mumzer, someone born from an adulterous, incestuous relationship, cannot marry a member of the Jewish people. A male Moabite or Ammonite descent can't marry someone of Jewish lineage. And written in this Torah portion, it also tells us about the laws governing the purity of the military camp, the prohibition against turning in an escaped slave, the duty to pay a worker on time, and to allow anyone working for you, man or woman, to eat on the job, the proper treatment of a debtor and the prohibition of charging interest on a loan, the laws of divorce, the laws of Yibum, the Leverite marriage, namely the law regarding the wife of a deceased childless brother or chalitza, um, the ceremony in which the woman is freed from marrying the brother of her deceased husband. And Kitetse concludes with the obligation to remember what Amalek did to you on the road and the way out of Egypt. Now, just listening to that list of laws would be exhaustive and exhausting. It would be impossible to properly comment on each and every one of those laws. Some you might call religious, some you might call social norms, some you might call the pursuit of justice, some would be laws with regard to our relationship with human beings, and some with regard to our relationship to God. The weekly reading gives an opportunity for all Jews, whether in the synagogue or during the days between Sunday and the next reading of the portion, a new portion, to study it. This morning, I want to focus on the last section of the portion. In Exodus 17, we read, The people journeyed, and they encamped in Riphidim. Moses named the place Strife and Challenge 
because of the strife of the people of Israel and their challenging of God, saying, God is among us or not. Then came Amalek and attacked the Israel in Rephidim. That's from Exodus 17. In this week's Torah portion, in Exodus 20, in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17 through 19, we read, Remember what Amalek did to you on the road on your way out of Egypt, that he encountered you on the way and cut off those lagging to your rear when you were tired and exhausted. He did not fear God. Therefore, you must obliterate the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. Do not forget. How do we understand this? Are we expected to hate the Amalekites forever? The Jewish people in Exodus had just experienced one of the greatest manifestations of divine power in history. Ten supernatural plagues had compelled the mightiest nation on earth to free them from their servitude. The sea had split up before them and manna had rained from the heavens to nourish them. How could they possibly ask in Exodus, is God amongst us or not? Yet such is the nature of doubt. There is doubt that is based on a rational query. There is doubt that rises from the doubter's subjective motives and desires. But then there is doubt, pure and simple, irrational doubt, doubt more powerful than reason, doubt that neutralizes the most convincing arguments and the most inspiring experiences with nothing more than a cynical shrug. Such was a doubt that left the Jewish people susceptible to attack from Amalek. Amalek in the spiritual sphere is the essence of baseless, irrational indifference. The Midrash tells us the following. To what is the incident of Amalek comparable? To a boiling tub of water which no creature was able to enter. Along came one evildoer and jumped into it, and although he was burned, he cooled it for the others. So too, when Israel came out of Egypt and God split the sea before them and drowned the Egyptians within it, the fear of them fell upon all the nations. But when Amalek came and challenged them, although he received his due from them, he cooled the awe of the nations of the world. This is why Amalek and what he represents constitutes the arch enemy of the Jewish Pishon and their mission in life. As Moses proclaimed following the war with Amalek, God has sworn by his throne, God is at war with Amalek for all generations. Now, that Midrash says to us that when we read this portion about remembering Amalek, we are invited to remember the evil that might ensue for those who do not find the glory of God in the world. Truth can refute logical arguments offered against it. Truth can prevail even over man's selfish desires and for the intrinsic nature of man. Rational man's facilities are powerless against the challenge of an animalic who leaps into the boiling tub, who brazenly mocks the truth and call, cools man's most inspired moments with nothing more than a submissive, so what? One, two, three verses from this week's parasha is transformed by Torah study 
into a uh, theological challenge to see the miracles in everyday life. This is why Jews see Torah study is so important. For Jewish faith and Jewish facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you a good day. You can hear a podcast of this show on iTunes or on the CHRI website. Shalom. Behold.